Hi everyone! Today on What's My Frame, I'm joined by casting legend John Frank Levy. John is a four-time Emmy Award-winning casting director. He's cast iconic shows like ER, The West Wing, Shameless, as well as countless others. He is a five-time winner of the Casting Society of America's Ardios Award and the recipient of its prestigious Hoyt Bowers Award, given for excellence in casting and outstanding contributions to the casting profession. After decades at Warner Brothers, John became vice president of casting for John Wells Productions before launching his own casting company. Today we dive into John's rich history in Hollywood, some iconic behind-the-scenes stories, along with discussing a few of my favorite chapters from his best-selling book, Right for the Role. I'm over the moon to have John on the show with me this week. I know you all are going to love this episode. Now, let's get to the conversation. Hey John, thank you so much for joining us on What's My Frame today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to our chat. Could you share for anyone that is not, I don't know how, but if they're not familiar with your career or just have not been able to read the book yet and don't know the wealth of your insight and the twists and turns of your career into casting, could you just share a little backstory for us? Well, sure. I guess um, uh, I'll paraphrase the the backstory that's in the book. I am the four-time Emmy Award-winning casting director of iconic television shows like China Beach, ER, The West Wing, Shameless, Animal Kingdom, and a bunch that didn't do as well as those. Uh, I've cast uh, for more than three and a half decades, uh, and I've been graced with the opportunity to be connected to a group of people uh, and a group of shows that have been enormously successful. And as a result of that, I've had an enormous opportunity to uh, become myself and to learn who that is and, uh, and, and to bring that discovery of myself to my work and to my colleagues and to my community. I haven't heard it put quite like that before. What what do you mean by a discovery of yourself and bringing that to your work in casting? Well, I mean, I think all of us who are artists and even those people who aren't artists uh, have, have a responsibility to be on a kind of a journey of self-discovery uh, because after all, uh, painters and piano players have... have uh, canvases and brushes and sponges and 88 keys um, but we have mostly ourselves our bodies our voices our training yeah. our imagination and our experiences and if we expand that those things we expand our toolbox and if we do that we expand our ability to contribute to success now, I would love to hear, because you have a background in theater that then led into TV and film casting, could you share a little bit of how that transition happened? Sure. I, well, you know, I, when I was in college, I, uh, I infuriated a lot of my friends by crossing the picket lines because oh. I, wanted to go to, I wanted to go to rehearsal uh, for plays that I was either acting in or directing. Um, when I got out of school, uh, after forming a summer theater with a group of friends, uh, I moved with my then wife to uh, Los Angeles, and I was kind of looking for an acting career, but uh, uh, sort of to talk about it in terms of what we were just talking about, I really didn't know much about myself, so I had uh, a sense of humor and I was a little bit cute. There are a few good pictures of me in the book. But, uh, you know, uh, I didn't really have uh, the tools of self-awareness and self-development yet to actually be much of an artist uh, or an actor. Um, but I still was very interested in the theater. And uh, somehow uh, a play came into my consciousness it was called the night of the 20th and it was written by an israeli playwright named J joshua sobel i think in israel they call him yahushua uh, but i always said joshua 
It was in Hebrew. I don't speak any Hebrew, so I had to find somebody to translate it. It was brought to me by a wonderful Israeli actress named Rita Zohar, and it concerned a group of Eastern European upper middle class kids who went to what was to become Israel and formed a community of like-minded people uh, that was the forerunner of the kibbutz. Uh, and I found that it had so much in common with my own experience in the 60s and early 70s, living on a commune with other like-minded upper middle-class overeducated kids uh, who were exploring freedoms of various kinds. And, um, and, and uh, it just so happened that the, the young actor who played the sort of poet character um, a guy named Jeremy Lawrence was in a relationship with uh, a man who was the director of audience development here in LA uh, for the Mark Taper Forum. And I guess Jeremy went home at night and told Bob how much fun he was having in rehearsals and how, how good he thought the show was going to be. And Bob came to a preview and he loved it. Uh, and he invited his boss, the artistic director of the Mark Taper Forum, Gordon Davidson, who is a legend here in Los Angeles yeah. for theater and repertory. Bob invited Gordon to come to see the show, and he did. And he brought along a colleague of his named Jules Irving, who was very important in the American theater community. And shortly thereafter, uh, the phone rang, and it was Gordon asking me if he if I would like it if he applied for the NEA Director's Fellowship in my name. And I uh, covered the phone for a moment and took a deep breath and tried not to cry and then said, yes, I would love that. Uh, sadly, the woman who was writing the grants proposals in those days at the taper missed the deadline. So I never actually got the NEA Director's Fellowship However, Gordon was true to his word and gave me an unnamed director's fellowship. And I was at the taper for two and a half seasons, two and a half years, uh, where I directed new plays in readings and in full productions at their secondary stages and assisted world-renowned directors on the main stage. I directed a play in L.A., Shortly after I left the taper, A.R. Gurney Jr.'s The Dining Room, it got bad reviews, despite a wonderful cast that included Joyce Van Patten and Dennis Dugan and Cindy Hughes, who was on television in those days. Um, and I went out for a drink. I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but I, I, after one of the shows with a famous casting director named Barbara Clayman, who had worked in New York and in Los Angeles. And she said something like, hey, stupid, if you're going to take it this hard, maybe you should do something else. Why don't you come and work for me? So uh, the next Monday I did. And I started my casting career in Barbara's offices. There, there are some parts of me that so wish that I got to experience that era of Hollywood and that though those kind of just conversations and it's so different now and there's there's such a disconnect with social media and as connected as we are it, it feels very distant it's very different now for those that are coming up um what was that first day like in Barbara's office and and was there any well, learning curve of taking actors from theater to on screen well, you know, Barbara was a notoriously tough cookie and she was a very demanding boss, but I, I was used to that. Most of the theater directors I worked with during the time I was at the taper were also demanding and tough cookies. Uh, uh, so she didn't scare me. I also, uh, I grew up with a, a powerful woman who I'm sure lots of people called a tough cookie, my mom. So I was, uh, I was ready for it. Um, you know, because of the work I did while I was at the taper, I spoke the language of the director. I spoke the language of the writer. I spoke the language of the, of the actor. Um, 
and the, those three languages are the you know the the basis of the language of a casting director yeah. and uh so i was able to talk to writers and directors about what their vision was i was able to talk about to actors about how to uh, what they might be thinking about in order to get the kind of result that that the writer and director were were hoping for mm -hmm. and i was able to feel confident and comfortable right away yeah now you very honestly put that there were huge successes that you were a part of and helped bring to life and there were ones that didn't go and you know we're filming this right now in the spring and there's you know there's pilots and there's lots of things that are happening right now and you never know what's going to go and what's not and what's going to turn into the success having been at those very developmental stages of such successful shows did you start to learn there's something special here. Did you start getting a sixth sense or is there really no way of knowing? Well, I, um, there, I would say there is no way of knowing because the marketplace is constantly shifting. I think the first job of any of us who are in the storytelling business, when we get a new project on our lap or our desk or our computer, our first job is to fall in love with it. Yeah. There are other people in the process whose job it is is to find the flaws and fix the flaws and all of that. Yes. They're development executives and buyers and and such. But my job is always to go, what do I love about this? What is it that speaks to me about this? What is it that I can relate to that that I can what is it that I can bring my best self, my best mind and my best emotional center to uh, how can I fall in love and uh, uh, that's the first thing I do is to read it and read it and read it again and see what it is that makes me tingle uh, makes me race my heart or my mind I, I couldn't pretend to know that ER was going to be ER or that the West Wing was going to be the West Wing or that Shameless was going to be Shameless or Animal Kingdom was going to be Animal Kingdom. But I did know that there was lots in all of those scripts that I found fascinating, exciting. Yeah. Now, I, we're going to dive more into your book in a little while, but I'm curious one thing that I, because I've, I've heard you speak before at the SAG After Foundation and reading your book and watching other interviews online, you have such an actor's approach to the text and the way that you speak about scripts and, and the way that dialogue just seems so rich when you're describing it. And I'm curious if you have a way or that you started having a habit of how you marked up scripts. You know, actors are notorious for having ways that they they mark up their scripts and whether it be auditions or after they've already booked. But I'm curious as the casting director, when you would get these scripts in for the next week of the West Wing or what have you, if if there was a way that you you processed or marked them up or maybe not. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't um, I don't mark them up and I don't create uh, backstories exactly. Uh, but what I do do is I start immediately and I make a list of the characters and mm -hmm. I write a few notes about, you know, she's a curly-headed blonde in her mid-twenties uh, with a farmer's daughter smile. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and she's smart and asks good questions. And I'll, I'll make notes like that about a character. Uh, uh, yes, I was referring to you. <laughs> thank you. I was like, thank, thank you very much. At first I was like, maybe, maybe, thank you. <laughs> I'll take the compliment. And, and uh, you know, and I, I do that, and I amend those thoughts and notes as I go, or add to them. And eventually, those notes are the thing that I use to create the breakdown, which I then, of course, submit to the writer and the director and the executive producer for their corrections, changes. After all, it's not my vision; it's my understanding of their vision. Yeah. Was there a script that you got either for a pilot or just an episode that you 
instantly fell in love with and like still to this day holds a special place in your heart? Well, the, the, the pilot script of ER uh, was e extraordinary in a number of ways because it had this amazing emotional impact. Yeah. Um, uh, but it also, uh, Mr. Crichton, who wrote the, the screenplay that it was based on, didn't bother to identify anybody but a very few characters by name. So it was nurse, 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 EMT, doctor, doctor, doc you know, and it was like, holy moly, uh, is this the same nurse on page 17 that was on page 42 uh, or not? Uh, how do we know? And so that once John Wells cleaned that all up uh, and, and there was a particular scene in the pilot um, which moved me greatly. It was an older couple. Um, I still remember all these years later, uh, Herta Ware played the woman and John Randolph played the man. And they had been married for many, 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 many decades. And um, she was clearly on her last legs. And um, just before she actually died, uh, the character, um, jo John kissed her eyes and sang not very well, that old black magic. And I remember thinking that if we could capture that authenticity, that simplicity of emotion, uh, that depth of relationship, uh, that humanity in a moment like that, that we could have something really special. Uh, fortunately, I knew both of those actors really well and I knew that if they got the job and when they got the jobs, that um, that's what would happen. Actually, Johnny Randolph could sing pretty good. He had a nice Irish tenor, but I think he made the choice to deliver the heart yeah. and let the notes be damned. Yeah, hard over performance. Now, obviously, this was cast in a very different time than the virtual world that we are now accustomed to. Um, but you used to read opposite the actors that came in, correct? Yeah. For many years, I read uh, uh, opposite everybody. Eventually, I, I uh, had an associate named Melanie Burgess who was really, really good. And so we divided them up by gender, an old-fashioned term. Uh, I, I read the so-called men and she read the so-called women. And then uh, later, uh, a, a young woman joined my staff named Tawny Tamietti, who still is on my staff today. And she had been a child actress and she is really a good reader. She's never, she never steals the focus, but she's always right there with you when you're auditioning. Uh, and so eventually I dropped out of the reading and did the front of the house, as I call it, uh, in a restaurant terms. Yes. And sort of uh, went out and got people out of the waiting room and greeted people in the waiting room and brought them into the auditioning room and introduced them and sort of was the, played the role of the host. <laughs> the welcome wagon. I'm curious because I loved going into the room. I also love self-tapes. I'm one of the weird ones that I try to find the positive in whatever. I, I miss getting, you know, to pop into an office and, you know, do my sides, tell a couple of jokes because I'm kind of quirky and then go about my day. But I also enjoy the freedom of, of doing things on my own schedule and, and taping and sending it off. But I'm really curious. You have a, a very unique perspective having worked successfully through so many iterations of the casting process. I'm curious what insight you have that you could share with actors to perhaps encourage them or, you know, this too shall pass. I mean, nothing, nothing is permanent in this business. If you have any insight, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> sure. Well, I, you know, uh, um, and I think if you've heard me talk about this before, you've heard me say that I acknowledge that technology in every way in all of our lives has increased efficiency, has increased opportunity, <clears throat> has increased freedom, 
yeah. timing, scheduling, um, it, it all of that is you know, and that you don't have in a city like Los Angeles to to not have to drive from Fox on the west side to Universal in the Valley to Warner Brothers in another part of the Valley, all in one day while changing your clothes while you drive. Uh, you know, when you're playing the 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 the, the Virgin in one scene and the Hooker in another, you you have to you know have a different presentation. All of that is greatly beneficial. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, but that said, I, I think there is a great loss, at least for me, um, because I think if we're in the business of telling stories about human beings, that human contact is very much an important part of the process. And, and, and we learn so much about each other. Uh, importantly, we learn so much about you in the moments between the scenes, in the moments when you're getting direction from a director, in the moments when I'm introducing you, in the moments when I see you interacting with the competition in the waiting room. Uh, all of that is so important for my getting a clear picture of you. Um, and we are missing that. And I am an OG of casting. Uh, and um, so, frankly, I, I hate it. I, I I see. I mean, I get that. And as you were describing that of going, I can't tell you how many times I've had an audition in the Valley and in Santa Monica in the same yeah. day. And the traffic couldn't have been worse in that direction. And I also think, you know, we have to be mindful of casting and our reps times of like all of the just time that's eaten up of trying to schedule or reschedule because of some conflict and then there's there is such an efficiency to it now but there is such a loss of of connection um you shared at the sag after foundation about how that you all were doing i believe it was the last season of animal kingdom where there was like virtual mm -hmm. chemistry reads and things like that was there anything that you gained through that process of the difference of actors that really were able to adapt and, and find their footing in the virtual space? Or was there anything that you were able to guide and work with them through? Because I think even virtual, like live virtual auditions are different than a self-tape because you're at least, you're getting something back in real time. Yeah, yeah, you're interacting. Well, I mean, I guess the, the thing, the main thing I learned um, was it's possible. Yeah. It's possible to do a good job even I, the three actors who got those important roles in the last season of Animal Kingdom, I have still never met them in person. Oh, wow. Um, because during COVID, when they were shooting, I couldn't go to the set. Yeah. Uh, I normally would go to the set on people's first days if they were going to be doing nine episodes or so, like those guys were, to greet them and thank them and, you know, uh, have a hug and a laugh. But um, that wasn't possible. You know, when we were doing the callbacks, the mix and match chemistry callbacks, all on Zoom with an actor in Western Canada, an actor in New York, and an actor, actor in Los Angeles, uh, who those were the three that got the jobs. I don't remember where the three who didn't got the were. But... <clears throat> um, the director, Nick Copas, said to me, God, this is weird. And I said, yeah, it sure as hell is. And then he said, but you know what's not weird is that eventually our audience is going to receive these actors' performances on television. Yeah. So that we're watching them on television to assess their work makes a certain kind of sense. I still hate it, but I reluctantly... Uh, I'm moving. I'm here. I am zooming with you, and and being on uh, on uh, Instagram uh, and and promoting my book on Instagram and 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 acknowledging that it is uh, the main reason that people have heard about it yeah. and know about it. And then you know, uh, I I hope it stands on its own once you buy it. 
and and read it and that 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 it that it has value and impact and and uh importance even uh but i couldn't possibly have promoted it to the extent that i have over the last i guess it's about seven months since the book came out um uh, we've had i i think i'm not 100 percent sure this is accurate but I believe we have had six days in that seven months without a single sale. And all the other days we've sold at least a book every day and sometimes three and sometimes five and sometimes eight. And, um, and so I have to acknowledge that uh, my hair is silver, but my eyes are wide open to the, uh, to the uh, realities of today's world. It's, I, I understand as an actor and also a small business owner, I get the, I get the resistance to it, but I also, I see the other side of it. There's, there is no way that an individual could afford to get a billboard or a TV commercial or, you know, advertisement yeah. costs. There's no comparison to the, the accessibility of social media. But I would have had to have hired a publicist <laughs> to get on radio shows in the old days yep <clears throat> and I, either. <laughs> you know it's already been expensive enough to produce this book yeah. the idea of having to hire someone to help you sell it is uh you know instead i have interesting conversations with interesting people yeah all right so let's dive in oh, right okay. for the role how did the idea come about and what kept you going as you as you wrote it? It's it's so wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, there wouldn't be a book without the woman who wrote it with me. Uh, she started out being called a ghostwriter, but in fact, she is a collaborator. Uh, her name is Trudy Roth, and even though it wasn't contractual, she's on the cover of the book now with me, as told to, uh, because literally I told it to her. She interviewed me the way you are. She asked me questions. She researched my career. She organized what I told her into the book that it became. And um, I, and we've become lifelong friends. So it's a gain gain. Um, you know, she, she sat me down uh, with masks on and uh, on Zoom and then later with masks on in my backyard, 10 feet apart, and she recorded our conversations. Uh, and uh, she asked me to send her an email at least once a day of a memory. And uh, I, I did that every, every day, uh, seven days a week for weeks on end. And as I remembered more things, I remembered more things and, yeah. uh, you know, one memory begat uh, 10 others. And uh, I talked with colleagues and former colleagues and they spurred my memory. And, and then the biggest contribution amongst the hundred giant contributions that Trudy gave is that she's such a kind and nurturing person that she subtly, um, I wouldn't say manipulated because I don't know that it was her purpose, but she convinced me that the book needed to be about my journey and not just about my stories yeah. and that I needed to inject my personal triumphs and tragedies uh, of which we all have too many of one and not enough of the other. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and, and so, th and I think one of the things that gave the book whatever impact it does have, whatever richness it does have, is that it is uh, a professional memoir that has a vein of personal growth and change, and that it's about, you know, the title is, of course, a actor pun. Yes. Uh, you, you all want to be right for the role. Yep. And I need you to be right for the role. But my journey led me to find the role that I was right for and gave me the opportunity to become a member of a collaborative, respectful community uh, and make a contribution to success. 
I would like to say on a very personal note, when I moved to Los Angeles, one of the first things that I did after I like unpacked in my apartment to immerse myself was I joined an acting class and I went to the acting bookshelves of Barnes and Noble at the Grove. And the way that I wish that this book had been there, it would have changed several years of my first experience into LA. It is truly unlike any acting book that I have read. And I am a sucker for a good book and I love reading. And the way that you go into not only these stories that I think give such inspiration and hope in a time that we really, really need it, like the timing of the book is excellent. There's such an insight into how the show came about. I mean, there's even copies of the breakdowns that are included in of this is what we were looking for. This is who ultimately, because you know, you can now, hindsight is twenty twenty because you know exactly who got that part, but to see the breakdown and it's just, I can't recommend it enough. I've, I've recommended it to so many friends and I've got my acting class reading it now. And it's just, thank you very much for writing that. I wish it was out there sooner, but also it was really good topic when it came out. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate your kind words and I, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that that's, that that's true. And I'm grateful that it is for you. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I come from a family of writers. Um, my dad wrote for the New York Times. My brother wrote for the Washington Post. And my mom translated scientific uh, papers into language that could end up getting grants for those scientists. I was very intimidated to start uh, to be a writer because I've always been uh, a talker and a feeler. Greatest compliments that I've gotten from people who know me who say that reading the book feels like sitting and talking. And uh, that that was that was the intent was to not be distant, but mm -hmm. to be invited. Yes. To be inclusive. To to let you know that you know I might be an intimidating idea but in reality i'm your friend i'm your uncle that was one of the things in reading it there are so many acting books that i think we can all relate to having read and it felt very much like a lecture in a, a college hall and this book very much felt like over coffee and yeah. that, that bringing it down to size and, and truly making a, you know, there, there's so much uncertainty in our business. There is, it's ever changing. We've already talked about that, but to make it accessible and to understand. Um, and I did very much appreciate it. I noticed the pun. Obviously we like actor puns here. <laughs> uh, so I, I appreciated that very much, very much. Um, did you have a, a favorite chapter of, of writing the book? Well, um, yeah, the two chapters that I had nothing to do with are my favorites. Uh, the foreword that my friend and um, boss, John Wells, wrote is so flattering. <laughs> I can hardly think about it without crying, much less read it. And the final chapter, you know, I sent out emails to a bunch of colleagues, members of my community, actors, writers, directors, producers, studio, executive casting colleagues who, uh, uh, and I said to them, hey, would you feel comfortable about writing a few short words about your experience of me uh, in my profession? And uh, I, I expected to get, you know, maybe 10% of the people I approached to answer and I expected they would write two or three sentences. Um, some of them did write two or three sentences, but many of them wrote, paragraphs and paragraphs and stories uh it's the end chapter and it's called other people's memories or stories or something i've forgotten now uh, and and there are some extraordinary um again uh wonderful compliments and and uh, uh one of my friends a wonderful writer uh carol flint asked me uh, uh, is there really a book, John, or are you just collecting accolades? <laughs> That's it's a good a friend bit, to ask that. That's a good friend. <laughs> it's a little bit like being at your funeral, but still being alive. 
Well, I, I think it's, we need as people and especially as creatives, we need to tell the people that we admire and enjoy their work. Like we need to tell them that more because it, 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 it does no good to just tell other people that person's awesome and we respect their work. Like you need to tell the person because I think everyone as artists, there's so much that we create and cultivate and give with no response. And, and, and I think personally, that's, that's one of the big, um, pitfalls of self-tapes is because of that, you know, you don't know yeah, what just goes that right into the universe with that. You don't yeah. get to see somebody sitting in their chair after you're done and smiling at you like, wow, that was fucking great. Yep. Laughter in the room is the thing that I miss the most. You know, it, yeah. it just, you hear. Yeah, well, as, a, as a comic actor, uh, I would think that laughter is, uh, it, you know, is it's the fuel. Oh, it's the food for sure. I think it's good that you got to hear. I think more people need to be able to hear the good things that their their creative coworkers or say about them. So my personal favorite chapter was chapter five. I really did enjoy ER. Um, for someone that <laughs> probably overshare, I'm not good. I'm not good with blood. I'm not good with medical things. I am very drawn to medical dramas and the the dynamics of those working environments and and ER paved the way for so many other shows I feel like um but I'm curious uh you have a lot of great stories in the book in chapter five from the ER pilot episode um like we talked about you shared the breakdowns um for those that haven't read the book yet and they should be going out to get it next but um could you walk us through the inspiration for that chapter and how you found its iconic cast? I would love to hear a little bit about the casting process for that one. So, so, I, I don't remember what chapter that is. That's the chapter that deals with the pilot of VR? Yeah, chapter five, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there were many things about that process that were incredibly unique. I, I guess you could start uh, with the fact that Warner Brothers had a, a what's called a holding deal with a, a young actor who had had seven failed pilots, um, but was exactly what we were looking for for Dr. Doug Ross. Mm -hmm. uh, George Clooney was, his services were owned by Warner Brothers Television. And uh, he told a story that I'm not altogether sure is true, but um, or maybe I've just forgot. He was working on Sisters at the time, playing a love interest for one of the sisters. And uh, he says that I wrapped the script of ER in a brown paper bag like it was a dirty magazine um, and brought it to his dressing room on Sisters and that he read it and realized that Dr. Doug Ross was his ticket and uh, he was sure as hell right and we had a fantastic meeting with George in my boss Barbara Miller's office with John Wells and Rod Holcomb who was directing the pilot and George and me and uh, George was what he always was and is to this day although I haven't seen him personally in a long time funny self-deprecating a, a, a riot and his greatest skill was making everybody in the room feel special and denying his own specialness um, with his humility uh, and he, he was just so funny. Um, so, you know, that's where it started. But then we, we um, gosh, each of those characters had such a unique story. John Wells and I were on an airplane flying to New York City uh, to do some casting where we actually saw Bill Macy in Oleana off Broadway uh, the first night that we had arrived. But uh, uh, and sitting in the row in front of us across the aisle was Sherry Stringfield. And she was presently on uh, NYPD Blue. And she was, uh, I guess, a little unhappy. And I had heard that she was a little unhappy. And wow. I think we had our first exchange on that airplane where we said to her, you know, we've got this part in this new pilot, uh, Dr. Susan Lewis. She's the one female lead in, in the ER in Chicago and we think you'd be pretty damn good. We'd love it if you'd audition for us when we all get back to LA. And somehow she was able to get out of 
NYPD Blue, and she did come and audition for us, and she was that fantastic. You know, earlier you said that we we live in an ever-changing time when nothing is certain, and there's an indelible moment in the pilot of uh, of ER, which I think was one of the audition scenes, but um, Miguel Ferrer, who happens to be Clooney's cousin, mm -hmm. um, was playing the part of a a blue collar guy who was diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And he asks Dr. Lewis how much longer he has to live. And she of course is reluctant to answer his question, but eventually she says to him, nothing is certain, nothing, nothing at all. It's one of the powerful moments in the show. And, and uh, uh, when we got our Emmy for the first season of ER, Sherry, in her down-home Texas regular girl way, was the only one to send me flowers. Uh, she's a great gal. That's um, you know, we, we tested at the network with Sherry uh, uh, and, and also for the parts of Dr. Mark Green and, and, and Dr. John Carter. Uh, and both Noah and and uh, Tony Anthony Edwards were, you know, uh, had changed so much, or at least Anthony had changed so much since he was Goose in Top Gun. He'd lost his hair, and so he'd lost some of his TV sexuality, mm -hmm. but he had all this de decency and all this heroic empathy and all of this. Uh, I think I told the story in the book where we were watching dailies in Barbara Miller's office one day and uh, Barbara called out to her assistant, uh, cancel my doctor's appointment. I'm going to Mark Green. Um, and, and I think that's how all of America felt was that yes. if you were going to be sick and in an ER, you sure as hell hope you had a doctor who was empathetic and smart and even tempered. Noah, was at the very beginning of his young career. He had done some films, but they hadn't come out yet. And I didn't know him. And his agent at the time was a person who I trusted her taste very much. And she kept bugging the shit out of me to uh, see, to have Noah come in for the producers. And I kept saying, why would I do that? Uh, I don't know him. I mean, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right that he's good, but I, I don't know. And I, the, my slots are full of, of people I do know, and they're very valuable slots. And I, and then I guess maybe the 98th time she bugged the hell out of me, I said yes. And uh, it happened that Noah came in on the one day that uh, Michael Crichton was present in the auditions. And he did something that I actually don't recommend. Uh, I didn't include a chapter that I wanted to write called Don't Have a Good Idea. Um, but Noah met me in the hallway when I went out to get him and I, I introduced myself to him. And he said, hey, I'm happy to do the two scenes that you've identified that you want me to audition with, but I'd like to do something else also. And I was like a little horrified and very nervous because not only was Wells and Holcomb in the room, but there was this six foot 10 inch man who wrote the original script and he was pretty intimidating and so I said well, well what is it Noah that you'd like to do and he said well there's a moment that I think is really funny and human where uh, Dr. Carter tries to take blood from a person from the for the first time and uh, he's been practicing on watermelons and footballs uh, but uh, would you sit down in the chair I'm gonna uh, pretend to take to try to get blood from your arm. And so he wrapped my bicep in a rubber band and he took a retractable pencil out of his inside pocket and he started to um, fail desperately at um, drawing blood from me. And um, it, it, it got funnier and funnier and funnier. And eventually that six foot 10 inch writer was literally on the floor in front of the couch 
holding his belly because he was laughing so hard. And I, I think Noah got the job in that moment, although he had to go through the process. Um, and then, of course, we we, uh, we also tested for, for Dr. Banton. And uh, the president of NBC at the time was a guy called Dr. Uh, Doc, a guy called Don Olmeyer. Uh, and he said, well, you know, you can have Tony and you can have Noah and you can have Sherry and you've got George. You're four fifths of the way to the very best cast on television. Um, and you can have this fellow who tested today, Michael Beach. Um, uh, but he, you can have him with some hesitancy on my part. And I went out into the hallway and um, John Wells and I were walking down towards the exit and then president of Warner Brothers Television, Leslie Moonves, mm -hmm. not somebody who is still president of anything, um, came up to us and said, don't pick up Michael's option. We've got to do better. We're, you know, we're on the verge of really having something incredibly special. Don't pick up Michael. And, uh, we got back to the offices and I went into Barbara Miller's office and I said, you know, uh, we can't really have Michael and he emerged in the process as the very best candidate and the only person I think of who really would be great is someone you won't let me see because he's in another Warner Brothers series and you have this rule about not competing with our fellows and it's Eric LaSalle and I'm going to do it well that's the way I remember it that I told her I'm going to do it Just whether you like it or not and um, and a couple of days later, Eric, well, it turned out that Eric was in another medical show that was shooting in Seattle. And for budget reasons, his character was demoted from the central cast to a recurring character. And so they no longer had exclusivity. They weren't paying a pilot fee. They were paying a guest star fee. So Eric came in. And he was wearing scrubs and he was in the hallway stretching like he was an NBA player right before the game started on the floor. Uh, and I went up to him and asked him if he was ready. And he said he was, and he came in and he brought so much intelligence and so much dignity and so much fierceness and some of the ego of the surgeon who, you know, the surgeon is not like a GP he or a, a, a doctor with children or a, a doctor with women uh, it, 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 they they have a godlike quality often yes. because they really are life and death yes. and eric in the most winning way had that arrogance um and we tested him and he rounded out the best cast on television and then of course juliana who had been a guest star in, in the pilot and attempted suicide. And in fact, the script strongly implied that she was not going to recover from her attempt, although that didn't happen in the script explicitly. Her relationship with Clooney tested so high, as did the whole sh show, uh, that uh, in a good old fashioned television tradition, she had a miraculous recovery and became the sixth series regular on ER. The actor in me is just so geeked out. Just when you get to a place that you just, you can appreciate other people's success and just hearing those stories, it's just, it's, it's just, just amazing. Since we were just talking about these auditions and these meetings and and the, the slots that you were testing in the producer sessions, how has things changed over the years? Because I think some younger actors, you know, we've heard these, they made us test seven times. We sat in a room that was dark and there was, you know, all these suits that were judging our performance and no one said a word. I personally haven't been in those rooms, um, but I'm curious, that's all true, I'm pretty sure, but how have you seen that shift in, in your career? Has it, has it gotten to be where the suits do trust casting more and there's more? No, you're shaking your head, no. Less, I think, because they're, they have the virtual capacity to be in our room 24 seven. And so some 
uh, executive in casting or in development or eventually higher up is watching every audition and has, uh, by nature, has an opinion going into a final screen test. And so they have had uh, uh, more of an opportunity to supervise, which yeah. is the polite way of saying metal, um, <laughs> the process. And in the days of China, of ER, uh, it was pre-technology. Yeah, I didn't have a cell phone. We had a, we might have had a fax machine, but we didn't have, we weren't recording any of the auditions. So I would call them up and say, uh, Juliana Margulies, who you probably don't know, is the choice for Nurse Carol Hathaway. And they would essentially say, we trust you, she's approved. Or, or even in those days, they only really had explicit approval over recurring roles and series regulars. Nowadays, they approve every one line Everyone. part. Yep. And, and, um, and because they have access, because they require us to give them access at every step along the way, first of all, it makes work for the casting associates and assistants that is just, you know, they're there till nine, 10 o'clock at night uploading auditions that you know that uh, aren't necessary i'll tell this insulting story which i don't mean to be insulting but sure. we were doing a pilot at fox okay. and uh, it, 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 interestingly enough the female lead was somebody that the network didn't like but that we were passionate about and i'll get back to her in a moment but at a certain point in the pilot she or somebody else got injured and an emergency medical technician arrived in a, an ambulance and that character had one line. And the casting executive, a very nice man, I like him very much, but he said, um, I'm not approving the one line EMT. And I was like, oh, for Christ's sake. For one thing, he'll be on camera for a tenth of a second because yeah. we'll be cutting to the series lead uh, um, uh, either on his line or right after his line, or maybe we'll never see his face at all. Maybe we'll see the back of his head in a two shot of, that is a close up of his patient. Yeah. And not only that, I have cast more one line EMTs than everybody else on the planet Earth combined. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Um, and eventually that actor was approved and uh, he didn't demolish the show. Thank God. It's never, it's never a good idea, though, to fight with the, the studio or the network, even if you're right about a series regular a lead, because then they go into watching it uh, every day in dailies with a chip on their shoulder. The young woman who had the female lead... Um, has since been nominated for an Academy Award. Her name is Florence Pugh. Florence! And they never liked her, and the pilot didn't go because they didn't like her. Did, I mean, if you can share, did they ever give a reason of why they didn't like her, or they just didn't like her? Some of it. I don't know how much. Some of it had to do with she was a little pudgy. She was playing an unhappy teenager, and many of the unhappy teenagers I've known are a little pudgy. So yeah. it was it was right for the role, but it wasn't right for their idea of the female lead of a television series. Wow. And maybe it was because she was playing an American teenager and while her American was damn good, yeah. it wasn't, it, it perhaps wasn't as perfect as it is today. Yeah. I, that was actually one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is me personally, I, I will die on this hill. I think casting knows and understands actors better than anyone else in the creative process, even up to directors. I think there's just, there's a very special bond between actor and casting director, because I think you're, you're in the trenches, you know, and there's no judgment in the trenches. Um, 
and and that's very interesting you said that it's it's not good to butt heads with the executives when they have a difference of opinion um I, i'm curious and i want to i want to word this well but did you have to go through fighting for an actor and then seeing it kind of blow back to learn that lesson or how how did you find that even if you in your heart of hearts knows that's the actor if they don't if they don't join you you can't fight but so hard for it well first of all thank you for saying that about casting and actors because we are in the mud together <laughs> yes and one of the things i hope the book does is sort of demystify the power that the casting director theoretically has over your advancement. We get to say no and maybe, and together with our collaborators, we get to say yes. yes. But, um, and, and uh, every actor should know that for practical reasons and for emotional reasons, we want you to be right. Yeah. We are rooting for you. And frequently we're even advocating for you. Um, uh, it reminded me to go back and tell you a story about advocating, uh, one of which is in the book that Mariska Hargitay tells about me, and one of which isn't, I don't think, in, in the book, uh, uh, but has to do, it may, it may be, I forgot, it has to do with the role of Mandy uh, Milkovich in Shameless. But um, I, I, uh, what was the question? <laughs> Was, um, was there an experience that you went through of fighting and championing for an actor and then learned the hard way that's that blew back? I think I, I think I learned the easy way by not advocating hard and insisting on Michael Beach and ending up with um, and Michael ended up being uh, the irresponsible husband of Jeannie Boulet who gave her HIV. So we, we got to use his great talents and he was also uh, a series regular. Uh, in New York, in um, a, a cop and fireman show that we did there years ago. Uh, he's an actor I, I, I adore and love. And Eric, who is one of his closest friends, uh, was writer for Dr. Benton. And I learned then that, uh, that I, I shouldn't uh, tilt against windmills unless I was really, really sure. Yeah. And if just quickly to go back to those other two stories, yeah. when we were casting the pilot of uh, uh, of Shameless, this character, this guest character of, of, of Mandy uh, Milkovich, who was another South Side of Chicago horrid family, um, and she was uh, the the best friend of, of uh, Ian Gallagher, who and she kept his secret that he she was the only one who knew that he was gay until such time as he came out and uh we uh, we were auditioning for that part and john picked a wonderful young actress to play that part um and there had been another actress in the room and i thought she was the cat's meow and i i called john at home at about 9 9:30 that night I was so agitated and I said, you know, please excuse me. I, I have, you know, how much I respect your judgment. And uh, obviously if this is what you are sure of, uh, I, I'm good. But I, I thought that Jane Levy was so fantastic and that I just loved something about her so much would you please give me an opportunity to show her to you again tomorrow uh, if I can get her to get in at, at a time that works for you? And he, he was, he's a very affable guy. And he kind of laughed, his Santa Claus laugh, and, and said, sure, go ahead. And, and, and Jane came in the next day and uh, um, we were all barefoot by the time she was done because she knocked our socks off. So that was a time when I successfully advocated, but I did it with humility and I, I, didn't, I, I didn't beat him up or challenge his authority in any way. And, um, and, and we had such a rapport by then that, um, you know, that it, that it was uh, okay. Yeah. So then Marisha came in for ER 
to play this mess of a girl who and, and the, the the scene was uh opposite anthony edwards and she she dumped her pocketbook out and you know all kinds of shit came out of her pocketbook that and she was you know putting tampons back in her, her pocketbook really fast because she was embarrassed or whatever and she was so funny and so you know and marishka has gone on to have a career playing a strong tough yeah. person and she can do that she is that but in those days her most alluring quality was that underneath that she was a mess and she revealed being a mess and she called me the next day or she came in for another project the next day and she said what happened with that er audition i really loved that part and i said i you know i don't know i haven't heard yet she said let's go over to talk to wells and find out and i i thought okay what the hell so we did and while john's assistant uh was reluctant to let us in i guess because i was there uh she eventually did. And John came out of his office, not inviting us in. Mm-hmm. And we had a conversation standing up in his assistant's office. And Marishka said, you know, gee, I really love that part. And I thought I did really well. And he said, oh, your reading was fantastic, but you're just too beautiful and too strong. And, uh, uh, and she proceeded to, I don't, I don't really remember. You'll have to buy the book and read the things that she wrote. Uh, but uh, she, Ten minutes later, when I got back to my office, John called and said, "Hire her," and we did. And that would that story would have gone in the "Don't Have a Good Idea" because it takes a lot of balls to uh, confront a producer like that. Um, it's almost never a good idea. Yep. But this one time, it was a great idea, and Marish was funny, vulnerable a shattered piece of glass, an unmade bed in a way that she never was before and never has been since. And uh, as much as I admire the long success she's had, you know, uh, uh, in, the, in the show that she's been in in New York for all these years, um, that, wor- that role is my favorite. Oh, yeah. Well... I personally would like to start the petition that don't have a good idea is the first chapter of your next book, because I personally really want to hear these stories. Um, well, as much as it will it. probably you know, be. You, you said earlier that you were at the, were you at the SAG after thing or did you just watch it on? No, I was actually, I was there. I was on the couches and it was, it was so nice to be in the room because I've watched so many of the, the SAG after foundations over the, the last couple of years where they were virtual. And it was like, no, if we're going to be in person and we can go and sit, I'm going to go sit because <laughs> it's just, it's. Was, wasn't, wasn't Sean Hattesby just fantastically loose and easy? Oh, and it was so nice to see. I actually haven't seen many where they had an actor you have cast numerous times doing the moderating. I thought that was yeah. so great because there's kind of a list of about 10 moderators that float around SAG AFTRA and like the five CCs, and you kind of you start learning. When they walk up and sit in the chair, you're going to like, okay, this is kind of the the conversation we're going to get. And I wasn't yeah. familiar with him. And when he started talking about coming into your room and I was just like, oh, this is, this is going to be, this is going to be really good. And I think it speaks volumes and it was a really good choice coinciding with the book of like just showing who you are as an actor's advocate. Cause I, I don't remember yeah. who said it. Um, it was a past guest. It was a casting director. It's like actor, casting directors don't say no. They just say not yet. And because when they fall in love with an actor, they continue to champion and try to create opportunities and try to find jobs. And it, it's such a mental shift when you when you take that into to consideration. Don, I could talk for another hour, but I want to be respectful of your time. So we, we asked the same question to end every episode, which is, what is one thing you wish you could go back and tell your younger self? Huh. I've been asked that. <laughs> I've been asked that actually a couple of times now. Uh, I can tell you with certainty that my younger self wouldn't have listened. Uh, that was one, one of his great strengths and weaknesses was that he was on his own trip, um, his own ride, both served me and condemned me. Um, but I, I guess I would uh, encourage my young self to 
get the long view mm. and, and and to realize that whatever you're going to do in your life professionally and in your relationships and your personal life um, that to realize that you're on a journey of finding yourself yeah. so that and that the more you can discover about yourself and the more uh, diversity of experiences you can create for yourself the more opportunity you're going to have to become a contributing member of a creative community that um, has an opportunity to create excellence yeah. I would have told my older self to shut the hell up um, because I was so in the no, in the now oh. at that and we were also programmed to be in the now uh, that the idea of the future was so abstract that I uh, that it was outside of my range of motion yeah I, I cannot thank you enough for making the time to chat and share your rich insight and stories 